Good morning. This is The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. I'm Frank Moreno. This is a real treat uh, to be able to chat with one of my favorites. Uh, In an era where cable news has largely become just a partisan echo chamber, completely devoid of creativity and almost devoid of actual news, there is one show that stands out. It's anchored by a person that our household schedules our whole Saturday around watching. And in an era where the medium that I love talk radio has so often become a cross between pro wrestling and a carnival only more predictable we can just point out the bad guy and preach to the choir about how evil they are his show stands out as a welcome throwback to the best traditions of what talk radio used to be and in an era where it's difficult to know which media sources are actually objective his daily email newsletter has become essential show prep for me, a welcome hodgepodge of diverse news and views, which which is not afraid to be unafraid when it comes to free speech. It is my great pleasure to welcome Michael Smirkanish, radio talk show host on Sirius XM's POTUS channel every morning at 9, and the anchor of Smirkanish on CNN every Saturday at 9. And by the way, of course, he is a best-selling author of seven books. Good morning, Michael. Thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, Frank, that is uh, really a kind introduction. I hope I can live up to that billing. So for people that uh, aren't familiar with your uh, with your career trajectory, there's a great film uh, that you've done where you talk about your life. And I'm going to tell people how they can watch it in just a minute. But uh, we have a lot of listeners in Philadelphia where you were just dominant in the ratings for a long time. And they remember you as being a conservative. And a lot of your political career has been as a Republican. You worked for Ronald Reagan, worked for George Bush, ran for office as a Republican. But for at least the last decade, you've been an unabashed independent. Explain to folks, uh, especially we do have a lot of conservatives listening who um, might find that a little strange. How did you go from being such a partisan Republican to such a strident independent? Well, I grew up in a Republican household. I, uh, I registered to vote when I turned 18 in 1980, which was a pretty monumental election year. You know, Ronald Reagan against Jimmy Carter would be how it ended up. And I registered as a Republican and was very comfortable as a Republican from 1980 all the way through, I would say, the 2000 election. I became disenchanted with the direction of the party, mostly, I guess, in the second term of of W, President George W. Bush, who I supported and and who I, you know, emceed an election eve rally in front of 20,000 people in a Pennsylvania cornfield. But I think what would be of significance to your primarily New York-based audience is that a big break point for me was the way in which the war on terror was being fought. And the further we got from September 11, the more I became convinced that the Bush administration had taken its eye off the hunt for bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri. Instead, we'd taken a, a left-hand uh, turn into Iraq and lost sight of the mission. And I became more and more disenchanted in the ability of the Bush administration to go find and kill those who were responsible for the events of September 11. That doesn't sound, by the way, like such a left-wing idea, does it? And yet that's (laughs) how people cast me when I decided that I would vote for Barack Obama in 2008. And that decision was largely predicated on Obama, then Senator Obama, 
being a guest on my radio program on several occasions and making a pledge to my audience that he would go find bin Laden, even if he were located in Pakistan, which ended up being quite prescient, and we all know how that ended. There was much more to it, but the Republican Party today, Frank, is not the Republican Party that I cut my teeth in back in the 1980s. One of the things that I really love about your show in all its forms, uh, TV, radio, YouTube, whatever, is that uh, you're totally unpredictable. I never know what you're going to say. I never know what take you're going to have on an issue. Never know what take a guest is going to have. I never know whether you're going to have on a liberal or conservative guest. And then you add a whole bunch of, uh, you know, really great legal commentary, great political commentary, and a lot of uh, terrific storytelling. One of the things about being an independent that I've found is that it's a, a bit lonely. We don't have a cable news channel <laughs> just funny. just devoted to uh, being independent. We don't have uh, all these uh, you know these think tanks and consultants that are dedicated to getting independent or centrist political candidates elected. What do you see as the future of the independent political movement? Because while well, on the one hand it's thirty four percent of the electorate. On the other, it seems like the country's never been more polarized. Well, I think a plurality of Americans describe themselves. I'm basing that on the Gallup data, and they, they take a constant look at this. You ask people, are you an R, a D, or an I? And you'll get a plurality of people saying, I'm an independent. I don't like the way Gallup then asks a follow-up question and says, oh, yeah, all right, but which way do you lean? Because mm -hmm. I think that then dilutes the power of independence. Most people see the world the way I see the world, or maybe the way that you see the world, which is not in doctrinaire terms. The only people that I meet who see all the issues through a conservative prism or a progressive prism are talk show hosts or cable <laughs> television personalities. Because when I'm leading my life and, and I'm interacting with people in my community or when I'm traveling around the country, I meet people for whom the issues are a mixed bag, usually conservative on financial issues and more progressive on social issues. But to your point, you'd never know that from turning on television or a radio station because instead we cater to the extremes. And I think it presents us in a very false light. Uh, why does that happen? Because passion, maybe not the most people, but the most passionate people are on the fringes. And they are very loyal listeners, and they are very loyal viewers, and they are very loyal, you know, website visitors. That's the dynamic. And the fact that you do, uh, not, you don't take a doctrinaire position, uh, left wing or right wing, coupled with the fact that you also do a lot of non-political talk on your show. You'll talk about movies, you'll talk about sports, you'll talk about, uh, uh, you know, TC, uh, TC's relatives getting vaccinated, not getting vaccinated. Uh, it, it really, I, I have such an, a rooting interest in your shows doing well, because I'd love to see so many more shows like it. And I'm pleased to see that uh, based on the ratings and based on the buzz that's everywhere that you are uh, doing well. And uh, in terms of incorporating non-political talk to a traditionally political talk format, is that a is that a concerted strategy on your point or on your part, or is that just a reflection of you ruminating about things that you're interested in? Well, on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm looking for the best content possible. And it doesn't have to be just within the, the, the political parameters. I'm a Seinfeld guy. I'm a Larry David guy. I think that I have been doing this, Frank, for 30 years. 
the best radio moments that I have provided people have not come from my political analysis. They have come from things that have gone on in my real life, the raising of our four kids, uh, things that I have shared on air in which everybody's got skin in the game, and it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat or an independent. You know, it's those Seinfeldian issues, or if you remember the episodes, those shows about nothing. And I have to make one other observation, because I don't want to forget to say this. When, when you talk about how I'm, I'm kind of swimming upstream in taking an independent approach in an industry that is dominated by the, the people who are far to one side or the other, you remind me, I mean, I, I know the heritage of 77 WABC. And I can remember how important it was to me when my show was put into syndication before I went to Sirius XM that I had an outlet in New York City. Unfortunately for me, it was not WABC. It was WOR. And in 2008, I voted for Barack Obama, and I was very public about it. I never became a Democrat. I'm not a Democrat today. I vote for both Republicans and Democrats, and if I get the shot, independence. But it was very important for me to be on a New York City flagship. In 2010, two years later, I became an independent. In other words, I remained as a Republican for two years after I voted for Obama. And I was very, very transparent about this whole process and what was running through my mind. And I remember that New York station, uh, the, uh, the owner and management of the station passing word to my syndicator that, 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 quote, if this continued, meaning my independence, I would no longer have a home on that radio outlet. They didn't want to hear it. All they wanted wow. to hear were people who were predictable and reading from a from wow. a conservative playbook. And I thought that was such a sad commentary on the industry at the time. Oh, no doubt about it. And I, I used to listen to you on WOR, and uh, I thought you did some great, uh, great shows there, as you ha always have. And uh, that's one of the reasons I'm very grateful to our owner, John Katsimatidis, for uh, creating the kind of environment at our radio station where free speech can flourish. And I think it's one of the reasons why in the last book we did three times the number of what, uh, in the ratings, is what WOR is doing. Uh, we're talking with Michael Smirkanish. He's a terrific radio talk show host on Sirius XM's POTUS channel. You can also see him on CNN every Saturday morning at nine. And if you want to know how he got to where he is politically, career wise, or just about every other respect, there's a terrific movie uh, that's basically just Michael's talking, but it's incredibly compelling called Things I Wish I Knew Before <laughs> I Started Talking. Uh, it's available. I've seen it actually twice now. It's really terrific. People can watch it. Now, Michael, that film emerged as a result of these live events that you were slated to do being canceled due to the pandemic. Is that right? Frank, I was scheduled to go out on the road and do 25 dates across the country. We had put the Philly dates, sort of a homecoming on sale, and they sold out quickly. And the others were about to go on sale just as in the spring of, uh, of 2020, the pandemic hit. And I'd already prepared myself and I had all the material and so forth. And I thought, uh oh, I may never get to present this to a live audience. It was an anecdotal reflection on what I'd seen in three decades of doing talk radio and cable television appearances. Something told me, go record it. And so, 
in the community in which I was born and raised in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, I, I commandeered a, a historic playhouse with a great backstory. Grace Kelly was once on that stage. Jimmy Stewart was once on that stage. And in an empty theater, I brought in a New York film crew, all properly distant and wearing masks and so forth. And I delivered my presentation. Uh, I had nowhere to go with the tape. I ended up showing the the recording to Jeff Zucker, who was the president of CNN, and he said, I will put this on the air. Uh, he gave me an hour of airtime, but, you know, when you then factor in commercials, it ended up being about half of my presentation. And after it aired on CNN, Hulu took control of it. So people who are listening on WABC, if they just can say my name into the clicker, uh, chances are they'll find it on Hulu and be able to watch it. I, I always wonder whatever happened to that guy, uh, Jeff Zucker, after that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you haven't I, heard anything recently, right? <laughs> uh, w- without betraying any any uh, any in the building confidences, what is the atmosphere like at CNN these days? Is it tense? Is it exciting with people waiting to see what happens next? Is it uh, depressing? Uh, what's it like over there? You, you know, I'm I'm truly uh, Charlie Sheen in Wall Street with Gordon Gecko. When Gecko says, "What are you, the 14th man on the deal?" I don't know anything because I, I'm Philadelphia-based. I deliver my radio program from Philadelphia. I deliver my CNN program from Philadelphia. Unless I'm guest hosting on a different time slot for CNN, like I did the month of December. I'm really not in New York City or in Washington, D.C., except for election nights. So I'm out of the loop. I know what you know by reading the newspapers and, and following what's what's going on. Yeah, it's funny. As the overnight guy, I'm pretty out of the loop with what happens with our station, and nobody ever <laughs> believes me. When they ask me, oh, what happened to the traffic guy? What happened to this person? I don't know. That person doesn't work here anymore. I have no idea. Um, I was watching your YouTube channel. You do this great uh, pre-show video on Saturdays, and you told the most compelling story, and I was, uh, on the one hand, riveted, and on the other hand, embarrassed that I wasn't more familiar with the story, and it began uh, with you telling a little bit of the backstory of a book that you wrote in the aftermath of September 11th called Instinct. And it had to do with the 20th hijacker, Muhammad Al-Qahtani, and the very heroic person that stopped Muhammad Al-Qahtani from being the 20th hijacker, and then subsequently helped United States authorities, uh, indirectly anyway, grab Osama bin Laden. And now, and I mentioned this story earlier in the week as a result of my learning it from you and then reading about it in the Times, and the Washington Post. Now, the plan is to send the 20th 9-11 hijacker, Mohammed Al-Qahtani, back to Saudi Arabia to be treated for mental illness. Give me your take on this, ethically, legally, morally, emotionally. How are you feeling about the United States sending back a mentally ill terrorist? Um, mixed feelings. I don't, I don't quite have it sorted out because, but for the mental illness aspect, if you said to me, we're going to repatriate Mohammed Al-Qahtani, who would have been on flight 93, who would have been the fifth muscle on that flight and arguably could have kept that plane in the air for the additional 15, 20 minutes that it needed to get from Pennsylvania to the Capitol, either the Capitol building or the White House. We're now going to send him back to Saudi Arabia without ever having given him a trial uh, and sentenced him. Instead, we're just going to hand him over to the I'd be you must be joking. That's outrageous. 
But it's a more complicated story than that. And the reason I'm so focused on it is that I paid close attention to the work of the 9-11 Commission, never set out to write a book about Jose Melendez Perez. But when I appreciated what this one man had done, I thought, my God, everybody needs to know his story. So I wrote the book. I gave all of the proceeds that I earned from it to the Flight 93 National Memorial. And as you just summarized, I mean, it's, it's this amazing story about an INS agent uh, before they were called Customs and Border Patrol, who on August 4, preceding September 11, meaning of 01, stops a guy from coming in at the Orlando International Airport because, as he said to the 9-11 Commission, he just gave me the creeps. He was a Saudi national, and Jose Melendez Perez thought he was up to no good. So he turned him around, and he sent him back out of the country. And what we later figured out, I say we, the 9-11 Commission figured out, uh, is that Mohammed Atta, the 9-11 ringleader, was at the airport at that time to pick the guy up. He'd have been the 20th hijacker. Instead, he goes back now to Pakistan, where he's captured at Tora Bora, fighting with bin Laden. And when he's now in U.S. custody, they're able to connect the biometrics from the the stop at Orlando and put all the pieces together and realize what they really had on their hands. And I'm, I'm trying to simplify a complicated story, but then when he's at Guantanamo Bay and interrogated, it is reported that he gave up details that led to bin Laden's courier. So it's just an amazing story that more people need to know. I would love to tell you, Frank, that the book that I wrote about Jose was a bestseller, but it wasn't. And so I, I welcome the opportunity anytime I can to just let people know that there's a guy out there. And but for him, it would have been a hell of a lot worse on September 11. Mm, it's a, an incredible story. And uh, I ordered that book, Instinct, uh, as soon as I heard you uh, tell that story on Saturday. And I'm very interested to see what ends up happening with Mohammed al Qatani and what the reaction is from some of the September 11th families that have been very vocal on this. Uh, one thing that has been a bestseller, even though you're giving it away, is this daily email newsletter that you've been doing. People can subscribe at smirconish.com. Now over 75,000 subscribers subscribers. Tell me, what was the idea for this email newsletter? I I, uh, I really value it tremendously when it comes time to uh, skimming through the news and picking what topics I'm going to do on my own show. What made you choose to share your show prep with the masses? Frank, I'll bet that you have friends like I have friends who think that hosting a radio program, a talk radio program, is the easiest gig going because you're just shooting the bull for a couple of hours, however, however long your time shift might be. You and I know that if you're doing it right, you've got to spend a hell of a lot more time reading in than when you get on the air. I mean, when I get on the air, I feel like my workday is over. I've done all the heavy lifting in preparing. <laughs> so I, I, I don't speak for a living. I read for a living. And I finally figured out I'm putting so much time into all of my show prep uh, the the net effect of which is that I have identified news stories on a day-to-day -day basis from sources on the left, from sources on the right, and maybe what I should do is bundle them and make them available to people as a read-in list so that when they start their day, they've got some media balance, which I think is desperately lacking in the world today. Everybody's got a newsletter, but if you go to the Associated Press or the Washington Post, the New York Times, and they want you to sign up for their newsletter, they're going to feed you links 
from that news site. I'm giving you something different, and I'm giving it to you for free. Every morning by 7.30, as I like to say, Philly time, in your email in bin, you're going to get 20 links from me that if you don't even open them, if you just scroll through the headlines and the lead, you're going to get a good feel on your way out the door of what's going on in the world, and hopefully from an unbiased perspective. It's uh, really terrific. I, I can't imagine going through my news consumption without it. You've well, been very generous you with your You've been very generous with your time. Before I let you go, though, I really enjoyed the interview that you did a couple of months ago with Andrew Yang, where he explained to you his reasons for leaving the Democratic Party and embarking on this new forward party. Do you see any reason for independents or uh, third party activists or centrists to be in uh, to be optimistic come 2024 because of what Andrew Yang's doing and his efforts to organize the forward party? I can only say I hope so. I believe that that there's an independent movement out there just yearning for leadership. And, you know, I, I wish that uh, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld had been able to get it off the ground back in 2016, but they weren't able to do so. You know, the, the former mayor of, of the great city of New York, Michael Bloomberg, I wish he would have taken a shot as an eye and not as an R or a D, because I think that Bloomberg standing on a debate stage in a, in a presidential debate would have shown an important light on an independent movement. Y you can't beat somebody with nobody. We need somebody, somebody with some stature, maybe it's Yang, I don't know, uh, to really advance the movement. I just know that there's a hunger out there for something different, because there are so darn many of us who aren't getting what we're looking for in the leadership today. A lot of people are saying, and I think this was in the newsletter that you put out yesterday, that crime could be the political game changer going into the midterm elections in New York, in Philadelphia, in Detroit, in San Francisco, in L.A., in Chicago. Uh, violent crime is up, up, up and up. How much do you think that's going to hurt the Democrats as we go into the midterm elections and you have people like Congresswoman Cori Bush uh, reiterating her call for defunding of the police? I think it's a big problem for Democrats. I, I really do. And I think that, you know, there, there are a handful of issues out there that really motivate people to go out and cast a ballot. And crime remains one of them. Uh, and I think that this this trend toward electing progressive prosecutors uh, who then want to defund the police or make bail changes. We have it going on in, in Philadelphia with, with uh, Larry Krasner. Uh, I know that with Alvin Bragg, it's now an issue in New York as well and in a number of other cities around the country. I think it's a real, it's a real problem. It's a real issue. Uh, you mentioned having been on the radio for 30 years. I think I've probably been listening to you for at least 15. Uh, you sound the same as when I first started listening to you. And what makes me uh, really in awe of that is that you've talked about how you smoke a cigar every day. Now, I enjoy an occasional <laughs> cigar. I'll do at most one a week. But I always feel like the day after I have a cigar, by hour three or four on the air, my voice is not up to par. How do you maintain that vocal integrity while at the same time maintaining that cigar? Well, I, I don't agree with you because when I go back and I listen to, to tapes of 15, 20 years ago, I'm horrified by 
the, the sound of my voice both then and now. I'm not one of those guys who, who by you know, just definition has the pipes for radio. But the answer to your question as to why can I smoke a cigar a day and the next day get away with it, it's because I, I, maybe I'm smoking too many or you're smoking too few. I don't know. I think, I, I think I'm, I'm sort of tested and uh, in the mode. Uh, Super Bowl prediction, Bengals or Rams? Who are you picking? Uh, probably Rams, but I love when new teams or teams we haven't seen in a while get in. So I'd, I'd be thrilled if it were the Bengals. But, I mean, don't, don't take my man card. I'm probably watching mostly for the commercials. Fair enough. Michael, at the risk of sounding patronizing, it really has been a thrill to have you on the program. You're I hope you'll nice, come back. Frank. Thank you. And uh, I'm, I'm a big fan. And, uh, I wish I, you good uh, things. Told Thank everybody. you. Ho- Thank hopefully, you. Ho- hopefully Katsmetis is okay with, with me having spent so much time with you. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I'm hoping uh, he's probably hoping some of your uh, your success will rub off on me and I could take a couple of notes from what you're doing. Michael Smirconish, thank you so much. See you, Frank. Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. I'm Frank Morano. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.